you have your Bibles here with you, please can you turn with me to Acts chapter number 5. We're in the middle of the series called The Acts, which is a look at the book of Acts. It's a look at the early church and how God used these people in the early church in these early days uh, to, to birth a movement, the church of Christ, the body of Christ that would sweep across the, the known world at that time and, and sweep across the nations. And we're still sitting here today because of what those men and women did. And we wanted to see as God moved in the lives of these ordinary people and how he moved, how he worked, how he, he spoke. And we believe that there is something for all of us to learn in that as the church today. That's why this was recorded in Scripture. It's why we have the Bible, because God is still teaching us through these books. And this book of Acts, we believe, hasn't ended. It's still continuing today, and we're still living out the book of Acts. We're still the ones that are being moved by God's Spirit to do things that are beyond us and to be a part of something that's greater than us. That's why we're here this morning, because we believe that God has called us to be a part of something that's bigger than ourselves and to, to truly make a difference in this life, to truly live for things that have eternal value. And as we come to Acts chapter number 5, uh, we find that it's a difficult passage. We're tackling uh, quite a, a difficult piece of Scripture this morning, and it's one of those that most pre preachers would prefer to avoid if they could. It's why not a lot of preachers do exegetical preaching where they preach through a book of the Bible because often as you're preaching through a book of the Bible, you, you arrive at a little piece that sounds a little bit strange or it's a little bit more challenging and we don't often know how to digest it. And so it's, it's, it's great just taking your favorite verses and just preaching those and just going, this, that was the best Sunday morning ever, but we want to see what Scripture says to us in its entirety and we want to understand it in the correct context and grow in our knowledge of the Word. So the title I'm going to be sharing with you, the title of the message I'm going to be sharing with you this morning is Drop Dead Gorgeous. Why don't you just look at somebody next to you and just tell them you're drop dead gorgeous. Come on. I hope you're sitting next to somebody you know. Hopefully if you're married, you didn't turn to the person on the other side. Come on. Come on, this is church. Come on. I believe that in Acts chapter number 5, as difficult as this passage is, there are some things that we can learn here. And uh, I'm hoping that by the end of today, we can, we can be encouraged um, in the faith that we have. But let's go to Acts chapter number 5 and verse 1. I'm going to read through to verse 6. And it says, But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 5. I just want to read these two verses as well as part of our foundation this morning. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5 and 6 says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. God has made us sufficient. 
not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's just go ahead and, and pray this morning, and we'll, we'll get into tackling uh, this passage of Scripture. Jesus, we want to thank you this morning that you're here speaking, giving wisdom, God, imparting hope and faith to each one of us, God. We thank you that you are the one who opens Scriptures. Even as the disciples, you, you, you were speaking to them, and they didn't understand. And you, The Bible says that you prayed that the Spirit would open up their hearts, open up their minds to understand, and you came and opened up their understanding. And they were able to perceive what you were saying, God. We pray for that for ourselves today, that you would open up our hearts and minds, that we would be encouraged to look to Jesus and Jesus only and trust in you, oh God, for, uh, for our salvation, for our righteousness, and for our faith. And we, we uh, thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So can I just see, I, I need some honest people here this morning, but how many of you have ever bought anything off of an infomercial? Thank you for the honest people in the back. May the Lord's blessing just descend upon you. Back in the 80s, infomercials used to be a massive thing. And if you switched on the TV anytime during the day, there was some very mock ad with that same guy, with that same voice, basically saying the same thing for various different products, trying to sell these items to you. And we all know how infomercials go. We know how we are being sold these things that we really, really, really don't need in our lives. Yet, if you stay tuned for just Long enough. I mean, just a minute too long, a couple of seconds too long, you will end up getting your credit card out and ordering stuff that is going to lie under your bed for many, many, many years to come. And, uh, and infomercials have this way of selling stuff to us. And um, I know that at one point, and I'm sure many of you have owned one of those battery-operated ab machines. <laughs> come on. Because you were sold the lie that if you put that on, you are basically doing 10,000 crunches an hour while eating nachos and watching TV. Come on, that's what you believe. You're like, I am going to have the most incredible six-pack ever because of what this ab machine is going to be doing to me. And I know that I actually owned one of those and used it. I actually, and I could have, I think we're all lucky to be alive. We could have electrocuted ourselves. We could have done some serious damage to our muscles, uh, especially when you're like, no, I want an eight-pack, and you just crank up the juice on that thing, and it is like your whole body is contracting every second, you know, just, just this inc incredible stuff that we, that we always buy. So we've all bought something like that. We've all had a thigh master at some time or another or some other thing that we now store in, uh, in a box somewhere or in our garage. And, uh, and infomercials are great. In fact, I found the best infomercial video ever, ever, my favorite ever. And I wanted to quickly just share it with you. Um, just watch this. It's a very easy to push. I push my Oh, yeah. 
So, yeah, that's what can happen in infomercials when you don't know. And what the best thing about that is the guy has just face planted into a steel ladder and he keeps selling the product. I mean, they have, they have cut to another scene just so that you don't see the blood everywhere in the studio. And he's still like, you know, it's still very safe. And just, just go ahead and order it with the blood coming out of his face. But um, that's just, I just had to share that with you this morning. One of the best infomercial uh, videos I've seen. Um, but... I remember being on holiday with my family a few years back. We were in the Drakensberg, and in the middle of the day, uh, we were at home, and uh, there was a lot of these infomercials coming up. And for some reason, we haven't ever done it before or since, but on that one holiday, I think we bought three or four items via uh, you know, these infomercials. And when we got home, one of the items that arrived was th this pair of sunglasses that they were walking around in California, letting people try on these sunglasses in the infomercial, and everybody was talking about how absolutely amazing it was. And, uh, and so we are, and these glasses arrived at home, and we opened up the box, and we put them on, and basically, these glasses were called blue blockers. Anybody ever heard of blue blockers? What blue blockers means is it basically means that the lenses are just completely orange. That's what they mean by blue blockers, is that not only does it block blue, though, it blocks every single other color except the color orange. And this is apparently some scientific breakthrough in ocular studies that has shown that if you really want good vision, you need to just look through orange lenses. And it was the most horrific thing we'd ever seen because it was basically like walking around inside of a bowl of Oros. All you could see was, it's not even different variations or shades of orange, it's just pure orange in front of you. And we bought this pair of blue blockers. And as I was reading this scripture, I remember those blue blockers because when you put them on, it basically colored your entire view. And when we read passages like this passage today, we have to remember that our view has been colored by the gospel. The gospel informs our reading. What the core message of the Bible is, is that God loved people so much that he sent his son to die for them on a cross. And having died for us, he was raised from the dead, and we all became alive with him. That is the grace of God. We didn't earn that or work for it or achieve it in any way. There's no religious thing we could have done for us to become righteous. And that understanding of God is so vital when we read scriptures like these. We put on those glasses, and it blocks out everything except the gospel. It colors our view. The love of God, the compassion of God, the goodness of God completely colors and informs our understanding of God. Because otherwise, what can happen is that you can extract from passages like this an understanding of God that is not based on the entire scope of the gospel, not based on the entire context of, of who God is. And you can actually start to formulate an idea of who God is that's not an accurate way. I've always said this, that once you see the gospel, you can never unsee it again. Once you've seen how much of, of a sinner you are, how much of sinners we are, and how God has died for every one of us, and how God has released us from our debt, and how gracious He has been. Once you've experienced that gratefulness for the grace of God, you can never go back to seeing God as a taskmaster. Or seeing God as somebody who's sitting in heaven with a two by four waiting to whack you over the head every time you mess up. Once you've seen the gospel, you can never unsee it. It's like putting on those blue blockers. Now it colors your view completely. 
the way you pray changes, the way you read your Bible changes, the way you relate to God completely changes. Because we understand that God loves people and that He came to save men's lives and not to destroy them, that He's good and loving and compassionate. But when we understand the full context of the gospel, we also understand it as, one part that we understand of it is that God is also sovereign. He's gracious, and that's why He can be gracious. That's why God can save us without our uh, having to do anything to earn it, because He is completely sovereign. If God wants to save us, He's going to save us. He can reach into our lives and He can change stuff. He can change our circumstances. He can, he can change everything about us because He is absolutely sovereign. What do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? In the simplest of terms, what we're saying is, is that God is in control of all things and that ultimately everything serves God's purpose. And I say ultimately because what that does mean is that penultimately, there are some things within the realm of our own free will that is not within God's will. All right? Does that make sense to everybody? Ultimately, God is in control of all things. Ultimately, He works all things together for good. But that doesn't mean that God hasn't given us a scope of free will and that oftentimes people do stuff that God doesn't want them to do, like sin. Yesterday, the babies were supposed to be taking a nap, and I heard a noise upstairs. They have got cots, and the cots are all the way down. They're not supposed to climb out of there. And I came into the room, and it was absolute chaos. They had pulled the lamp over, lampshades broken again. The clothes are out of the cupboards. The drawers are open. I closed them in there. And inside of that room, they sometimes do stuff that I don't want them to do. They sometimes mess up a little bit, or they pull clothes out of the cupboard, or they break the lamp. But ultimately, it's still my house, and ultimately, I'm still guiding their lives and helping them to grow. And that's how God is sovereign over our lives and over every part of life. And even when we mess up, even when people do things that are outside of God's will, He can still work those things together for His good. If you've ever thought about your own past and thought there's some stuff that I shouldn't have done and you've been carrying that regret for years and years and years, the good news is, is that even though in the scope of the free will that God gave you, you may have done some things that God didn't want you to do, the truth is, is that He can still now redeem, and that's what God does. He redeems, He restores, He revives, and He will still use every one of those experiences and work everything to the good. The Bible says God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God loves you and He has a purpose for your life. And so He is sovereign and will cause every part of our lives to work together. So people often read the scripture about Ananias and they go, well, the problem with Ananias was is that he didn't give all of his money. The problem with Ananias was that uh, that he, he sold this field, he had an amount of money, and he kept some back for himself. He didn't give his whole heart. And that's not actually true. That's not what the problem here was for Ananias. A lot of people say, well, the problem was that Ananias lied, that he just wanted to, to appear as if he was doing something really good. And obviously, that is what Ananias was doing, but that wasn't the real problem for Ananias and his wife in the Scripture. The real problem here in this text for Ananias was that he ultimately believed that he needed to work his way into God's favor. Ananias believed that if everybody was giving, 
If everybody was doing, if everybody was, was working together and, and selling land and taking the money and, and, and giving it, that he believed that in order to remain right with God, he needed to be doing the same. And Christians today do the same thing. They come into church and they see a lot of people behaving in a certain way and they go, if I am to be accepted by God, I need to look the same, I need to speak the same, I need to smell the same, I need to say the same words. Very quickly, you're like, okay, everybody's saying amen, amen, amen. You know, everybody's saying hallelujah, hallelujah. Like how, and, and we can just pick up this, this culture very quickly. And we can believe, we can start to believe that God only accepts us if we do certain things and if we live a certain way. It's easy for us to fall into this trap. It's easy for us to believe that our standing with God is based on how well we perform. Will God accept me if I don't sell my land and give the proceeds to the apostles? Will God still accept me if I, if, if I don't do as much as the other Christians or if I don't feel it in my heart? Will he still be able to work in my life? And many, many people, many, many Christians have given up because of that feeling of condemnation in their lives. That's what comes. Condemnation is the only thing that comes from believing that your works or the things that you do can make you right with God or keep you right with God. I've heard so many preachers say this, that Jesus set you free, but you have to keep yourself free. Jesus made you righteous, but you have to keep yourself righteous. This is where we put on the gospel glasses. And we see how Paul says in the book of Galatians, if you were made, if you were saved through the God's spirit, how are you now through your flesh going to be made perfect? If it was God's grace that delivered you from your initial state of sinfulness, how are you now going to make yourself by your own effort? You couldn't save yourself by your own effort. How are you now going to keep yourself saved or perfect yourself through your own effort? And over and over and over and over again, Paul addresses people who are trying to do that and says to them, if Jesus saved you, let Jesus continue saving you. If Jesus made you righteous, let Jesus keep you righteous. Don't believe for one second that you have to earn your righteousness. I've had discussions with people about this, and I had one guy actually draw it for me. He must have been, he was probably getting frustrated, so he started drawing diagrams. You know how it is. Husbands, when you're trying to explain something to your wife in like a restaurant, you're like, napkin, napkin, pen, pen. I need to explain something here. We're going we're gonna to go to school. And... Um, so when guys get frustrated, they start drawing. And I'm trying to explain the gospel to this guy. And he's like, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. So he draws a circle. And he says, you know, when you're sinful. And then when you give your life to Jesus, he forgives you of your sins. And you're in a relationship. And he kind of draws a circle inside of that circle and says, now you're inside of this relationship with God. But then when you sin, you move outside of the relationship with God again. But then you repent and you move back into it. And then you, you sin and you, remove, you move out of it. And you repent and you move back in. So it's this constant moving in and out of a relationship with God. That sounds like the worst relationship ever. That's like worse than high school dating. That's primary school dating. It's, it's, it's no way to have a relationship with God. And I said to him, what happens if the last thing that you do, let's say you step out onto, onto the road, you're about to cross the road, and you look up and a bus is literally about to hit you and you get enough time for one swear word. Just one. And it just comes out, as you could imagine, as a bus is about to hit you. 
You're either going to call upon the name of the Lord or you're going to cuss. There's very little that's going to happen in between there. And the bus hits you. What happens now? Because you've said something you shouldn't have said the moment before you died. Are you now going to be condemned forever? Or does the Bible say that when Jesus died for sin, he died for sin once and for all? And that we have become, by faith, the righteousness of God, by our faith in Christ Jesus. You see, when you, when you believe that, you'll constantly feel that you would need to repent. And, and, and we do need to repent. We do need to admit our sin to God. And actually, what I found is the more I've believed in the gospel, the more free I am to repent. I'm no longer trying to hide sin from God because I know that I have an advocate with the Father. So I'm open. I'm like, God, I messed up. I, I'm, I shouldn't be doing this, and I need your help. I'm, I'm more honest with God than I've ever been in my life because I know the gospel. But there was a time when I would sit down and I would start repenting. And then I would be worried that there was stuff that I couldn't remember that I had done or stuff that I thought I had done right and I'd actually done it wrong. And then I started repenting of stuff I don't even know. I was like, God, if I, maybe when I was three, if I was selfish, forgive me, you know, and because I'm so concerned about the fact that I might lose my relationship with God. And it erodes your confidence, and it literally erodes your relationship with God. That's what happens when we believe that we have to earn our righteousness. We'll never feel bold or secure or confident before God again. And this is what Ananias felt. We want to live righteously. We actually want to uh, be righteous, not just act righteously right? Come on, isn't that what we want? We want to live righteous lives, but not because we're pretending to be righteous, not because we're righteous when people are looking or when people are around, but because God has truly made us righteous. And this is where Charles Spurgeon says that right believing leads to right living. You can only live correctly once you believe correctly. You can only live righteously once you've been made righteous. And that's what the gospel says. The Bible tells, in fact, Jesus tells the story of a Pharisee who did many righteous acts. He stood in a temple praying. And as he was praying in the temple, there was a sinner in the back, a tax collector in the back. And so he begins to pray standing before God. And he says, God, I thank you. This is, this is how his prayer starts. That I am not like that man. Can you imagine just me up here this morning going, oh, I thank you so much, Jesus. I'm not like that guy. You know, just like, just the level of self-righteousness in that. And sorry, I wasn't pointing to anybody specifically. I'm just, <laughs> it's an illustration. But I thank you that I'm not like that man. And I thank you, God, that, that I pay my tithe. He takes such pride in what he does. And I thank you, God, that, that I give to the poor. And I thank you, God, that I pray every day. I'm not like that guy. Jesus, remember, is telling this story. And the man in the back isn't doing anything except beating his chest, Jesus says. He's just beating his chest. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the words of Jesus are that that man who is beating his chest is the one who leaves the temple justified. Not the one who stands before God going, I thank you, God, that I do so many good things. You see, when we remove our actions from a true righteousness from Christ, what happens is we build self-righteousness. And ultimately, we're taking the place of Jesus trying to save ourselves. That's what happens. 
That's what happened to Ananias. Instead of trusting in the righteousness that came from Jesus, he felt that he needed to maintain his righteousness through his actions. In Romans 10, verse 1 to 3, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. Now remember, this is Paul is talking about his own brothers here. He, he was a Pharisee. He was an Israelite. He says, I, I pray for the people of Israel. I want them to be saved. I know the, enthu- the enthusiasm they have for God. But it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of getting right. Sorry, they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. They have zeal. They're passionate. You find so many Christians, they're passionate. I pray. I worship. I, I do what God, I give to the poor. I, I pay my tithe. I do anything I'm supposed to do. But oftentimes their zeal is misdirected because they don't understand how God makes himself right with people. How God makes people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law, by trying to observe certain uh, statutes and by principles and rules. They live by rules instead of by, by grace. He says, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. The ESV version of the scripture says that they did not want to submit to the righteousness which comes from God through Jesus because they wanted to establish their own righteousness. I want to make myself righteous. I don't want to submit to Jesus and what he has done for me. That's where faith comes in. When we do this, when we become convinced that we need to work certain works in order to remain righteous, we become bound to our works. Ultimately, serving our works and working for our own righteousness. And what the scripture is very clear on is no matter how good we try to be, no matter how many good things we do, the flesh can only produce death. The flesh isn't something that God redeems. This is important for us to know. If you've come in here today and you go, I used to be an old person, I'm trying to be a new person, I want you to know that God does not take your old sinful self and try to make it better. He takes our old sinful selves and he nails it to the cross with Jesus and he gives us a new life. God doesn't give you a better life, he gives you a new life. He doesn't improve. The gospel is not about taking bad people and making them a little bit better. The gospel is about taking dead people and making them alive. And often what we try and do as Christians is we try and take our dead sinful selves and we go, let me just self-help a little bit. Let me just motivate a little bit. Let me just be a little kinder. Let me just try a little bit harder to be good. But it's like trying to take something that is dead and make it look more beautiful. It's like spraying perfume on a corpse. You can dress it up, you can make it smell better, you can, you can do whatever you want to do, but ultimately it's still dead. And when we take our own sinful selves, our flesh, we say, I'm going to try and serve God with all my heart, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to, and all of this, the focus is so much on you and not on what Jesus has done for you. All that you're doing is that you're dressing up the death that's inside of you, the sinfulness that's inside of you. That's why the scripture tells us, that scripture that we read in the beginning. The scripture says that the letter kills, 
but the Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life and the letter kills. When we live by the letter of the law, by works, it produces only death. Our flesh is hostile towards God. The scripture says that. That our flesh is, is warring against and, and fighting against God. Which means that there's no peaceful coexistence between your flesh and God, between my flesh and God. No matter how hard I try, I will always in my flesh, in my sinful self, rebel against God. Because I am sinful. So the flesh is hostile. And I remember reading something by, by Watchman Nee. And he was speaking about how both the good things and the bad things that we do are hostile, are hostility towards God. In other words, your flesh is so dead set against God that we sin in two ways. The first way is by doing all the stuff that we know that we're not supposed to do that would normally be construed as sin. We sin in that way. But a greater sin than that is all the good stuff that we do where we're trying to save ourselves. It's still hostility towards God. And so as Christians, we don't only repent of our bad works, we repent of our good works. Sorry, Jesus, that I thought I could make it on my own. Sorry that I, could, I thought I could just be a good person on my own. When we meet Jesus, when we see the gospel, that fallacy gets destroyed, that myth gets busted, and we realize I cannot be good apart from Christ. There is nothing good that dwells in my flesh. And that's where Romans 8 verse 8 comes in. It says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Whether you're doing good things or bad things, it's still the flesh and it's still hostility towards God. We see this in the beginning of, of uh, Genesis with Cain and Abel. They both brought sacrifices to God. Abel brings a lamb, just a small lamb, brings it before God. He didn't work for that lamb. He just looked after it, brought the lamb, says, I sacrifice this lamb. Cain brings the fruit that he had, he had worked in the ground. It was the fruit of his own labor. He had toiled for it and worked for it. And he brings it before God. And the Bible says God could not accept Cain's offering. It wasn't because God was more of a, a meat eater than a vegetarian. It was because God can only accept the lamb. And again, we have a picture of Jesus. We can bring all of the good works that we've worked for and we've toiled the ground and we can take all of the stuff and we go, God, look how good I am. Look at all the stuff I have done. And God goes, I cannot accept you on the basis of what you have done. I can only accept you on the basis of what my son has done for you. And that's a free gift. I didn't have to, I didn't have to do anything. This lamb was given for me. Trusting in Jesus. He's the only lamb. He's the only thing, the only sacrifice that can take away our sin. So the flesh can never please God. The simple fact is, is that there is no life or righteousness outside of Christ. No life or righteousness outside of Christ. And that's why we come to Jesus and we put our faith, which means trust, in Him and what He has done to make us righteous. And then the Bible says, as God, it says this in Hebrews 4, it says, as God rested from His works, we rest from our works also. That's why Jesus was the Sabbath. The Sabbath was pointing to Jesus. 
a time when all the works were done and then we rested. And Hebrews 4 says, therefore there now remains for the people of God a rest. When we trust in the gospel, we cease from our works as God did from his also. Now that doesn't mean we don't live righteously and do righteous things, but it means we're no longer trying to earn our righteousness. The gospel is not against effort, it's against earning. It's not against us working hard, it's against us working for our righteousness. Romans 3 verse 21 says this, it says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, separate from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Christ Jesus, to all and on all who believe. What does it take to be made righteous? To believe. The disciples come to Jesus, they say, Jesus, teach us how we should do the works of God. We want to know, how do we do the works of God? Jesus' answer, this is how you do the work of God. Believe in him whom he sent. Believe in Jesus. That's the work of God. And then God works in us and then he begins to work through us. Then it's everything that we do is not us doing it, but it's Christ doing it. We don't take any glory. Jesus gets the glory. It's not our flesh saying, yes, Jesus saved me, but now it's up to me. We're going, no, if there is anything that I'm doing today for the glory of God, it's by the grace of God. It's only because he is present. And so I remember reading the title of a book many years ago that said, stop trying to live for God and start letting God live through you. There's a big difference there. Ananias was free. In Christ, he was free. He wasn't obligated to do anything. He wasn't obligated to sell his land. He wasn't obligated to give the money, not one part of it. In fact, when he brings it to Peter, Peter says to him, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, what are you doing? When this was your property, wasn't it your property? He goes on to say, and when you sold it, was not the money your money? Weren't you free to use that property in any way you like or use the money any way you like? It's yours. Nobody put any obligation. There wasn't a letter that went out to all the Christians of the day to say, hey guys, please, we really need you all to sell your stuff and bring us the money. There was no obligation. And so he says, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? Why have you, you haven't lied to man, but to God. You see, when we believe that we have to earn our righteousness and we do righteous things, we'll always hold back a certain bit for ourselves. There's always a selfish intent in every righteous thing that we do. It's like John Ortberg once said, I'd like to be humble, but what if no one notices? And that's what happens. When you do self-righteous things, you'll do them, but you want some form of credit for it. Like you'll, you'll, go and, you'll go and help the poor, but only if you can Instagram it later. You'll go and, and, and do very sacrificial things, but only if you know it's going to benefit you in some way. And that's what self-righteousness does. That's what happens when we serve God while at the same time actually trying to save ourselves through our works. Is that we always hold some back for ourselves. It says, when Ananias heard these words... He fell down and breathed his last. Ananias died. The name Ananias, and we've looked at this before, but the name Ananias means grace. 
Ananias means grace. And what God was saying to this early church, and what God is saying to us as well today, is that when you take the grace of God and you begin to mix it with the law, what it produces is not a good balance between grace and truth, it produces death. When we take Ananias and we mix it with a keeping of our own righteousness, it produces death. Because grace plus law equals law. It doesn't equal grace and law. It only produces death. It isn't any way for us to serve God. And so again, Paul speaking to the church in Galatia, and he says to them, why have you, after having begun in the Spirit, think, thought that you could make, be made perfect in the flesh? Any of you who believe that you will be made just, or you will be justified through the law, you have fallen from grace. And you've become a stranger from Christ. We've got to trust Jesus completely for our righteousness. He makes us righteous and he helps us to live righteously. He completely saves us as his free gift. We often want to help God save us. It's just a natural thing. We want to help God save us. The band we're rehearsing at my house this past week, as they always do, and uh, so the box with cables was, was left in the house, and I was trying to load it in the car. And Eli, my little three-year-old, who you can also hear from downstairs, um, was trying to help me. And he's always wanting to help his dad. No matter what I do, if I'm, if I'm mowing the lawn or if anything I'm doing, Eli is trying to help me. And in this specific moment, I'm trying to carry this heavy box of cables. You have no idea how heavy cables can actually become once you put them together in a box. And I'm trying to carry this heavy box of cables through the door. And Eli is trying to help me. And he's underneath here, underneath my feet. We're going downstairs. And he is, he's actually more of a hindrance than he's a help, right? And that is often how we are with God. God has put the weight of our righteousness on the shoulders of Christ. And he's carried it. But then we want to put a hand on the box and say, no, no, God, let me help. Let me help. Let me help. Let me help you make me righteous. And what the Bible calls us in the New Testament is disobedience to God. It's a lack of faith. We're not trusting in Jesus for our righteousness. I hope this is making sense this morning. So this story of Ananias, as difficult as it is, was a critical lesson that served God's purpose to the early church and to us today. And what it's telling us is that if we want to be saved by Jesus, we need to put our trust in Jesus. If Jesus has saved us, we need to stop trying to save ourselves. If Jesus has made us righteous, we need to stop trying to help him make us righteous and just trust him to make us righteous. And only when we completely trust in God's grace can we start doing the things that God has graced us to do. So I believe that God used the life and death of Ananias for a great purpose. That scripture in 2 Corinthians that we read right in the beginning says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from Christ. And I want every single person here to be encouraged today. I want you to know that you cannot save yourself. That God doesn't love you because you've done a certain amount of good things. God doesn't, you're not going to get into heaven because you've, because you've kept up a good track record. 
You're going to get into heaven and have God in your life because in your faith of what Jesus has done for you. I want to encourage us not to be like Ananias. Not to receive the grace of God and then go, well, that was nice. God forgave me of what I did in the past, but now it's all up to me. But that every single day we'll preach the gospel to ourselves and continue to walk in the righteousness that God has given us.